Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Visions. Welcome to Orlando. My name is Claire Gelfman, and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer here at the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And it is my esteemed pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Mandeep Singh. Uh, this is the first session of the morning, Stem Cells and Retinal Disease. And the session will last approximately 65 minutes. And the last 20 minutes of the session will be reserved for questions from the audience, from all of you. Um, however, I've been informed by Dr. Singh that we really want this to be interactive. So please feel free during our presentation to uh, raise your hand and we will make sure that we will come tell you when it's your turn to speak because we really want you to use this time to learn as much as you can about this topic. So a little bit of Dr. Singh's background. He is an ophthalmologist specializing in inherited retinal diseases uh, and vitreoretinal surgery. He is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and genetic medicine at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He is the founding co-director of the Genetic Eye Diseases Center, where he leads the coordination of care for patients with inherited retinal diseases in cooperation with the Department of Genetic Medicine at Hopkins. He's also developed new surgical devices and operative approaches to safely deliver cell and gene therapy agents to the retina. In his laboratory, his team focuses on retinal regenerative medicine and translational neuroscience. His laboratory research focus is on stem cell therapy for inherited and acquired diseases of the retina, with an emphasis on developing safe and effective stem cell treatments to preserve or restore vision in people experiencing vision loss. He also plays a role in education as the director of the Johns Hopkins course in degenerative retinal diseases. And for his contributions to research on restoring vision, he received the Ruskell Medal in 2013 and the Burt Glazer Award in 2018. So before we begin, I want to encourage all of you to be social with us. You can follow the Visions Conversation on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share your experiences using the conference hashtag, hashtag Visions2022. So at this time, I would like to uh, turn the session over to you, Dr. Singh, and welcome again. Thank you. Thank you for the very kind introduction. Thank you for the very kind story. I'm right here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Claire, thank you. Can you all hear me? Is this lapel microphone not good? Let me try this. Is this a little bit better? Oh, you got the control. Let's do another trial. Hello? Testing one, two, three. How's this? Yes, from the back and the front. Thank you. And if I, I'm very short, actually. If I stand up, is that all right? That's good. All right, thank, thank you. <clears throat> That's good. Thank you, everyone. Claire, thank you for that really kind introduction. And uh, good to be with you all. Good to be with you all. Uh, is everyone staying at Disney? To, yeah, you're all staying at Disney. No? No, yeah. It's quite interesting. It looks like, it feels like paradise when you walk in. You know, there's all these nice people and all of that. But try getting a late checkout. 
Okay, because that's what I did this morning. I was like, hey, can I called up, you know, can I get a late checkout? And she said, no, sir, it has not been approved. And she sounded like a robot. So um, all is not well in Disney World. Um, so first I want to thank FFB, Rick Claire. Thank you to you and your team. I think what you do for all of us is incredible. Thank you. And to Amy and Leila, I know who put hours into this. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so before we get into like, you know, stem cells and all of that, I want to know, you know, who's us in this room today? Who's discussing stem cells? So um, um, let's poll the audience. Yes. Get, excellent. Thank you. Did you have a, a question? Well, I, I thought you'd just ask us who is actually in here for the vision. Thank you. Yep. And that's exactly it. So in this room, who among you are people living with retinal conditions? If you're comfortable saying, thank, thank you, thank you. And who, got it, thank you. And whose um, family, friends, neighbors, anyone who's touched by someone else having, thank you, that's, that's, uh, and who, who, you know, what's the breakdown? Young onset inherited retinal disease or age-related macular degeneration? And both of those are important to FFB, right, Claire? Yes. So let's do who uh, is more connected with children, inherited, genetic, hereditary stuff, and thank you. And who's connected with age-related, older vision loss in the elderly? Thank you. That's good. Who, yes? So there is a category um, that you didn't mention, like the, the young people who were just diagnosed with um, some You know, can I give you a microphone? This is really important. Thank you. I really, you know, and everyone, just jump in with comments. Okay. So um, I didn't hear you mention a category with the younger. Um, when I say younger, I mean like 30s, 40s category um, that had 20-20 vision all their life. And then, of course, I don't know how to pronounce this right, but it's um, juxtaphobiotelangatia. You know, one day. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, and one day that becomes, um, you know, you go to the eye doctor, you know, your routine exam, and then your eye doctor sends you to a retina specialist, and then this comes about, and we're like, well, wait a minute, how did that come about? And, and what's the solution? Excellent, thank you, thanks for that. Um, you're right, that's uh, ju juxtaphobial telangiectasia. I see a couple of experts in the audience, actually. We might uh, call on them to say, um, it's in that category of degenerative retinal conditions. You're absolutely right. And there's younger people who, um, who experience that kind of vision loss at that age, beginning with very good vision. So thanks for bringing that up, and hopefully we'll include that in today's discussion. So let's add it. Well, who among you is affected by juxtaphobial telangiectasia? Okay, excellent. Thank you. All right, excellent. And who can pronounce it? That's an, okay, I'm kidding. Um, so... And this isn't just for fun. I want to know who among you know people with neurological diseases? Severe ones, you know, where people are losing neurons, losing nerve function for any reason in the whole entire body, not just in the eye. Can you raise your hands? Thank you. Um, in this neurological group, how many of them, you know, to the extent that you know, the problems in the brain 
versus problems in the nerves on the extremities, like you know, feet and hands. So who's, who's problems in the brain, like central nervous system degeneration issues? Yeah, great. And peripheral nerves, you know, getting weak on the limbs and sensation, all of that, thank you, yeah. Very important, and the reason I'm asking this question is because it frames today's discussion. When we think about stem cell therapy in the eye, we borrow from principles that have come from folks trying this or wanting to try this in the brain. Because the eye is an extension of the brain. It's a, it's a part of the brain that juts out to the front of the face. So it's really, as in this audience, as we talk about eye stuff, like as a scientist, I, I always think, can we make this more generalizable outside the eye as well? Who among you are physicians, doctors? Don't be shy. <laughs> Two small hands, excellent, thank you. Great to have you both, okay? And please, I'll invite you to jump in, make comments, correct me if I said anything correct, and just help me out today as well. Um, scientists, any scientists, stem cell people that run labs or work in labs, associated with labs, thank you. Rob Hafnagel, thank you. And Dr. Franchak in the back, I wanted to acknowledge you as well. Um, Industry. Are there people in here from companies, industries, startups working on cell therapy? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, those folks are really important. I said those because I, I only saw a couple, you know. I think companies are the, the folks that get the treatments to market and they want to hear what all of you think as well. Anyone here from the FDA? We need to buy you a big glass of wine, put them in the best room, Claire. <laughs> Anyone here from the FDA? Uh, no, great, darn it, okay. I was hoping to make friends with some FDA people. Um, because regulatory issues are a huge area of, you know, and it, that's the final frontier is to present the dossier to the FDA and get the clearance, and some of you here know that challenge. And I, I wanna make a plug for the FFB crew because uh, they're working very hard to make sure that that road is smooth. Thank you. Any veterinarians? No, okay. And the reason I ask is we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about animal testing, because that's a big deal in stem cell therapy development. You know, we test these in um, small animals and larger ones, and that's also a huge bottleneck in the field. And uh, for those of you who fund, contribute to funding this research, by the way, who's the money in the room? That's the net, who's the investors? Uh, money, money, show yourself. I, I contribute to the FFB, I'll put my hand up. Anyway, okay, great, thank you, thank you everyone, thank you. Sure, there's a request to turn the volume up a little bit, thank you. Is this and any better? It's also my voice, sorry, it's, it's my fault. To that point, Dr. Singh, um, for the rest of the group, since we have a full room now, if anyone is using an assisted living device, please turn to channel number three. Thank you. Are we good for audio? At the back, can you hear me now? Okay, I'll do a better job now. Uh, so for the people that contribute funding to the FFB, a big area where the labs need funds is to do the testing in the category of animals we call large animals. You need animals that are the shape and the size and the cells and the characteristics of humans. And sometimes that doesn't, that's not faithfully uh, produced in a mouse. The mouse eyes are just, you know, this much close to humans, but we need larger animals. How many of you own a pig? 
or grew up with a pig. I mean, an animal that's a pig. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> um, so, yikes. Sorry. Ah. And if you are living with a pig. All right. Are there any engineers in the room? Engineers, thank you. Great, so engineers, very important, and hopefully some of the questions will come here from, uh, because you know, half the problem of um, stem cell therapy is getting it in. It's like flying a plane. And uh, engineers work on the materials, on scaffolds that put the cells in the correct shape and configuration and size, you know, making little postage stamps or other sort of devices that can help to slip them into the eye. And this is not a small task, it's also a huge task that uh, some of my colleagues uh, all over the country are working on. We'll talk about them in a bit. The other part that engineers uh, play a really important role is the surgery. So we all know that you know, the, the vision of putting stem cells into someone's eye and repairing their vision, this isn't a thought that we had as retinal surgeons 10 years ago, right? This is totally new. And so the tools and the devices and the techniques to do the operation in the OR, you know, I, I operate every week, those tools maybe don't really exist yet. And we need to, to develop great ways of putting the cells in with less bleeding, less scarring, making it safer for children, all of those priorities. So you can see now, so the stem cell story gets bigger and bigger. There's the cells in the labs. We gotta think about the FDA, think about the scaffolds. Then we have to think about the surgeons putting them in. You gotta think about pigs and animals. <laughs> and it's just, it takes a village. And I just want to, again, just say for people that fund the FFB and, and the FFB itself, you know, this is how it all works. And FFB is a big powerhouse of all of this. I, you know, thank you for also funding the work that I do. Uh, okay, um, I think that's it. I think we covered all the categories of, are there any just random people in a groupies that I didn't mention who are just here for the fun? I don't know. Any other categories of people that I missed? Usher syndrome, thank you. Thank, yep, that's right. That's a very important type of in, uh, hereditary retinopathies. Good. Okay, I think now we have a sense of who's in the room. Um, and I just want to, before I, um, maybe I'll, I'll just, Claire already gave me a very kind introduction, but just, um, you know, I take care of patients and then I do surgeries. We have a genetic eye center at Johns Hopkins that helps people get their genetic testing as quick as possible in the right way. I think that's a huge part of all of this. And then I have a stem cell lab um, where we do two things. We try to make the right kinds of cells um, and make sure the cells are what they say on the tin and then when you put them in, they do what they're supposed to do. We're working on the cell, cell biology part of things that's in the lab. And then separately, there's a, a part of my lab that works on the devices and the surgery and that's, you know, every time I do a human surgery, I walk up to the lab and write down all the stuff that we need to change to to do stem cell surgery effectively, and that's part of the stuff that we do. Um, finally, before we um, get into the stem cell story, I just want to lay the parameters a little bit, okay? Uh, I, I try, and Claire, we spoke about this, you know, so please don't, like, ask me about specific companies or, like, don't say, what do you think about that guy? And, you know, I'm not gonna, I'd rather not, okay? Uh, so, and if, if a question like that comes up where I feel it's information that, you know, I shouldn't be discussing like a specific company or a specific uh, product that someone's making. I'm just gonna say, like the person at Mickey Mouse, I'm gonna say that was not approved, okay? And then we're gonna <laughs> stop that question. I'll say Mickey Mouse, how about that's the code word for like, I'd rather not talk about this. Would that be okay? I'll say yeah. Mickey Mouse. All right, good. 
So in the next th three, four minutes, I'll just give you a context of STEM, like the story, the way I see it. And you know, um, Kevin, Rob, if, you, if, you, if I miss milestones, just let me know. Um, it's it, and, and the goal of this is to just tell you how much work and funding and research it takes, okay? So 1946, how many years, that's 80 years ago, almost. 1946 was when a lady in England, and it was a lady, um, um, transplanted, just had the idea, if someone's losing photoreceptor cells in the eye, you know rods and cones, these are the cells that give us our vision. Uh, can we get cells from another animal? She asked a very fundamental question. Can we get cells from another animal and can you transplant them in? And if I introduced new rods and cones and new photoreceptors into the eye, will they survive or will the eye explode or something? It's a very fundamental question and this was in 1946. I think she was in Liverpool uh, in the United Kingdom and she conducted the first ever transplant in the world. I mean, that's how long ago this happened. 13 years ago, two other researchers, Royo and Key, often mistakenly thought to be the first people, but the, the first one's actually Catherine Tansley. Uh, they reproduced her work by injecting bigger doses into the eye, and all this was done in rats, by the way, because they were the smallest animal with the largest eyes that you could operate on, because you cannot do an operation on a cockroach. So you, you have to choose, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, we use mice in, in our lab because they have the genetics that are important, but rats are good, are good models. And then for 30 years, things were a little bit, so 30 whole years, um, the technology kind of, I think, needed, you know, the methods need to come up, came, come up to do these transplants. And then there's a whole community of people, Ray Lund, Radke, Magdalene Seeler, Araman, I mean, I could go on, uh, Bart Schmidt, um, Das, this is work in the late 80s and 90s. Finally, people started transplanting all kinds of cells, you know, asking questions, well, all right, do we get the cells from inside the eye? Do they need to be uh, cultured in the lab for a while? Do we break them up before putting them in? Do we put them together before putting them in? You know, it's like a test kitchen in, when you're trying to build a fancy restaurant. This is really a test kitchen, throwing 100 recipes at the wall, and this is the time, and I hope you'll forgive me for saying, Claire, that in labs, I'll just be honest, uh, the other scientists in the room can chime in. Eight out of 10 things don't work. You know, maybe seven out of 10 things, th 10 things don't work. And it takes a lot of tenacity and courage to keep going in the face of all that failure. It's a bit like recipe. You have to figure out whether poppy seed or caraway seed is what you put into the muffins, you know? And you've got to find the right one because it's not just a recipe, but it's to treat human beings. So I think the researchers in this field keep doing things again and again until they get it right. And it took a decade in the 80s and 90s. Then something happened in 2006 that I think was quite important. Uh, a researcher called Robert McLaren. Um, finally, you know, people are trying all kinds of different types of rods and cones to put in the eye, and Robert McLaren's work, it made the cover of this journal called Nature, and he defined the age of the cells and the type and the characteristics of the cells that were the most effective of having a regenerative effect. So that was in the, you know, 2006. And suddenly people went, all right, now we have an idea of which types of ingredients are going to work the well, the best for human beings. And um, that decade was huge when, when the type, the ideal donor cell type, so that's the technical phrase, the donor cell types. What kind of cells do we get from the donors to transplant in for stem cell therapy? Um, many researchers began um, accelerating their work 
you know, folks like Anand Swarup, Tom Ray, Deepak Lamba, Henry Klassen, Mike Young, Val Cantor-Sola, David Gamm. These are all my uh, incredible colleagues that produce so much work to define the types of cells um, that could be put into the eye. And that was the, about the time that I went to uh, join McLaren. So I, I thought, well, everything seems to be happening in England with 1946 Catherine Tansley and 2006 Robert McLaren. So I went to join uh, Robert McLaren's lab. And I said, teach me about stem cell therapy. And he said, OK, look at my paper. And then in the 15th figure in the supplement, there's a little experiment where we used one totally blind mouse. OK? And we tried to put stem cells in and check whether the vision improved. And that one mouse kind of <clears throat> didn't quite make it. Do you want to do that again? Do you, want to, do you want to spend four years trying to make completely blind mice see again? Uh, and I said, OK. Mom, my mom thought I was crazy, but I said, OK. And uh, so that's what I did for four years. We began to transplant all kinds of cells in the eye. And, um, and there were encouraging findings. And many end-stage vision loss mice were able to regain vision. And again, this was uh, a good thing for the field. So that was like proof that you could find the right cells, that you could deliver enough of a dose, and that there was evidence of biological effect, that vision could be improved in many ways. And there are many labs, uh, those names that I mentioned, uh, that played a role in defining this body of knowledge. While I was there in England, something really exciting happened in Japan. 2011. Does the name Sasai mean anything to you? What? Iraku and Sasai. Thank you. I, sh I should ask <laughs> Mr. Rick. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, do, you, do, you do, do you want to make a comment about their work? Uh, no, go, go right ahead. Right. <laughs> so, uh, researchers in Japan, because you know for a while it's, it's all well and good if you want to get cells from, um, that already exist, like from a donor, but how about creating the cells in the lab from someone's skin cells or blood cells, you know? You want to create little retinas in the lab, in the petri dishes that you can lift off and transplant into people at scale. At scale, we need hundreds and thousands of these doses, right? So there's a lot of rationale to creating in the lab rather than getting them from donor individuals, which is a whole other topic to discuss. But Dr. Sasai figured out that if you cultured stem cells and avoided them sticking on a plate. You know two Petri dishes in two dimension? Have you seen these cell culture images of cells swimming sideways in two dimension? They, you know, they only become eye cells so much. And when you get when you lift them off the plate, you let them fly and you culture them in a ball, which if you think about it, is a little bit what happens in a human pregnancy. Human babies don't grow, don't grow on a plate, right? They, I mean, not at least to a teenagehood, you know? And they're little round in three dimension, right? The embryo develops in three dimensions. So he said, let's do this in the lab. And so when he did that and lifted them off the plate and allowed them to form a ball, they formed little eyeballs and little retinas. And this was almost like a miracle in the field. And I remember when we heard about this, I was with my colleagues in the lab. And you know, we'd just been to the pub the night before in Oxford. And everyone was excited, a little hungover. And <laughs> like, yes, did you read that paper from Japan yesterday? And um, so that was a breakthrough. Finally, there was evidence that you could get bona fide retinal cells that had all the characteristics and the identity features, functionally, morphologically. You know, They had the structure. They looked like it. They acted like it. We had real replacement cells 
the technology to manufacture them in the lab. So you think about it, everything's coming together now, right? You have the principles that you can transplant the cells, that they have an effect, and now we have a method to manufacture the cells, and things were really, in 2011, I think people got very excited. Um, so, on the basis of all of that, there's a number of several very promising clinical trials that are going on now with this idea that if you put in cells, um, they'll replace the lost cells in the eye and create positive effects for vision. The question a little bit for the field, and Clara, I know we're up, uh, going against time for Q&A a little bit. So this is the end of the, sp the spiel, okay? And then we'll go into like interactive. But, the question for the field now is how does that happen? If we aren't, so you put cells in, vision gets better in, in numerous animal models. So the good thing about mice, by the way, with a lot of research funding, they've created mice that carry the same mutations as human beings. That's been huge for the field, right? Because we can test it in the same inherited disease, degenerative diseases that mimic the human characteristics. So in many, many mouse models, there appear to be visual improvements when you put stem cells in. So the question is, how? And if we understood how, once you understood, understand how something, is it a molecule that makes it happen? Is it a new synapse? The word synapse means something to you, right? It's how neurons connect with each other. And if, if, are they forming new synapses? Are they, are they secreting factors that protect and reactivate the damaged cells? Or are they um, providing, like a gas tank, providing direct injections of material to the dead cells and helping them along, like giving the, giving the cells a leg up. There's many different methods that cells can do their job. If we understood each one, we can then develop technologies to promote each one, you see? So that's, again, a huge avenue of research. Once we understand how, we can make it better and make people see better and make the cells survive better. So just so you know, and I know all of you are gonna go back and look online, you know, we think about somatic integration and synaptogenesis. That's the technical term for cells turning up and replacing the cells that are gone. Totally replacing the cells that are gone. Taking their place, creating a new synapse, and reactivating the vision circuit. That's somatic integration. Then there's neuroprotection, which is where cells secrete factors, soluble factors that diffuse to the injured cells and help them, like a band-aid, help them do better. And then thirdly, there's a, a new concept that's arisen called cytoplasmic transfer or materials transfer, where apparently if you transplant donor cells into the eye, what they do is they open up channels with disease cells and they donate parts of themselves to the recipient cells. It's actually quite beautiful if you think about it. And uh, that's uh, what cells want to do is they want to help each other. <laughs> so if we kind of understood all these ways that cells do the job that they appear to be doing, then we can create artificial methods to boost them. Okay, I think that's where kind of, you know, the story is now. And it just shows you from 1946 how long it's taken for us to get to this point, for all those pieces to fit together. And um, I think for someone like me, you know, who like began in the 20s, it's just very nice to know that clinical trials are being contemplated, designed, and enacted. I think that's excellent, and that uh, the regulators, more importantly the FDA, um, is now beginning to think about these issues. Okay, so I have, um, I think that's, that's it, unless we have a ton of questions, but I had a question for you, the, the audience. 
everyone. And feel free to chime in with a microphone. Uh, I mean, what does stem cell therapy mean to you? What have you heard? What do you think it's supposed to do? What are your concerns? What are your feelings? Anyone? Great, let me get you the microphones. Thank you. We should have uh, mic runners. Oh, here we go. Go ahead. Okay, stem cell therapy to me means really my only viable chance of recovering lost vision. If you look at the, the genetic or gene therapies, essentially those are going to be helpful for someone who is not far progressed, but they're not going to recover lost cells. So for me, gene therapy is the holy grail. It's a mechanism to recover something that's been lost. And at this point, I'm not aware of any other options or research that offer anything in that direction. Do I misunderstand or is that what we're looking at with stem cells is this is our last best hope, if you will, to recover vision that we've already lost. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you hit the nail on the head um, with the question. Um, you're right. So if you wanted to rebuild cells, then remember the original principle of stem cells was that you put new cells in and it would plump up the tissue in the eye and replace those cells. People are working on workarounds to that. You know, there's this field called optogenetics now, where you can introduce factors that reactivate vision in a very late stage disease. So that's another little concept of people trying to repair vision in a late stage, because people know that's important. And then there are, or were, people working on electronic microchips that were trying to do the same thing. So people that really were at a late stage of vision, can we do electrical stimulation? And I believe there's groups trying this, all sections of the, the circuit, in the eye, back of the eye, all the way up to the brain, all of that. You know, people are really trying to think where the direct electrical stimulation can do the job. So stem cells are the ideal, I guess, maybe not, I don't know, but you know, if you, if you used a microchip, there wouldn't be like an immune rejection problem. You, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. Um, I'll make a plug for how stem cells can also apply to someone in the early stage. Do you remember what I said about giving a part of themselves and donating materials directly by opening channels? That's a mechanism that's applicable in the early stage. If you put cells in when there are stressed cells inside the eye, you know like in the first 10 years of life when someone has an inherited retinal disease or carrying a mutation, at that point the cells haven't begun disappearing and degenerating yet. They're just stressed and they're coping with this mutation and their inner molecules are becoming dysregulated and unbalanced. Before they degenerate, if you can put cells in to inject cytoplasm by those direct channels, I think that's a way to replenish the interior of those cells and rejuvenate their internal contents and prevent that tipping point. Uh, you know, that's stuff that people are working on in the lab now. And so I think stem cells, uh, you know, this is the stem cell session, so to cast it widely, stem cells can have a role in early disease, in mid-disease, when you're thinking about protection, and then in the late disease where you're trying to repair things. Does that answer your question?
question a little bit? Did I go too long? Uh, to an extent, I guess... Uh, I think the mic is coming your way. <laughs> In other words, when we're looking at stem cells, there's a number of possible approaches there. Uh, certainly recovering uh, cells, cells that, as you say, are not doing so well. Uh, but in my case, uh, you know, I'll just share with you what uh, Gerald Fishman said uh, regarding uh, my retinas. Said, look like uh, tornadoes have gone through both of uh, your eyes. So there's not really much to recover there. All I heard him uh, do was carry on to his assistant about mud pies and bony spicules. So uh, essentially, uh, I don't know if there's a whole lot you can do with uh, mud pies and bony spicules. But about 15 years ago, I asked uh, David Gam to give me an opinion, in other words, uh, and I will admit I pressured him, just give me an opinion as an expert in this field, in the next 20 years, do you believe that there is going to be a stem cell therapy that will be usable to recover lost vision where you've lost the photoreceptors, you've lost the RPE cells? So I'd like to ask you a modified version of the question. Uh, in the next 10 years, what do you believe the possibility, the probability of that is and understand uh, at some subsequent conference, I'm not going to come out and said, well, Mandeep said, you know, five years, this was going to. Just like you did for David Gann. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to do that. Okay. No, I'm kidding. Sorry, sorry. Okay. I'm kidding. Please go on. I'm kidding. Please. I, I never told you what the percentage yeah, he gave yeah, me correct. was. Correct. Right. That's right. right. So. Uh, essentially, uh, if you look around the room here, at least some of us aren't getting any younger. And in my case, at least, uh, I would like to at least have a feel for what the probability is of a viable solution occurring uh, before it's basically too late for me to even care about it. You know, um I, my, my problem is that I'm an optimist, okay? And, um, we like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so among the bad things I've been called in, in my life is that I'm a little bit naive. So um, I, think, I think I'm very optimistic, to, to be honest. And that's, you know, um, that's why I've kind of, and me and others in this room, have kind of ded dedicated their career on it. And I, I think, you know, when I have my team in the lab, and we get together and we huddle and get going, you know, I tell them, listen, you, you, you and I don't have 10 or 15 or 20 years. The patients don't have 10 or 15 or 20 years. That's a big guiding principle in our group. We always think of folks that I see every week who are losing vision day on day, you know. And so my lab, you know, and many groups around the urgency is, is with us. And um, I'm not going to put a number on it, but I'm optimistic that so many threads of technology are coming together. There's already work, people working on the delivery. There's a lot more good animal models. Uh, the cell manufacturing technology is great. And then if we can open the doors with the FDA to, for them to understand how these things are tested and measured in human beings, 
I mean, I'm going to say a very cautious, guarded, yes, I think we'll make it. I mean, you said 10 years. I'm going to say, yeah, I hope so. David got 20, you got 10. 20, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't tell him that, because he'll say, that guy's so naive. Okay, anyway, yeah, more questions in the back, sure. Yes, I'm going here. So thank you so much for your presentation and for being personable with science, so appreciate that. Um, so my son is 22, diagnosed with Stargardt's three years ago. It mostly has his functional vision, but of course that one day a year when he goes to the retinal specialist and they're like, yes, but here's all the degradation that's happening, you know, that is not necessarily affecting you yet. So when you think about that kind of a situation and the possibility of different kinds of clinical trials, right, gene therapy or, or just the drugs to try and slow down the degeneration, and then stem cells and these, you know, more future-looking things. If you, if you were him, right, like how, how would you look at this in terms of participating in some of that research? Because um, there's the like sit it out and wait and see. There's the, you know, let's get on board with this, but then you, you can't do multiple things at the same time. So I, I'd just be really interested, since you're a clinician as well, to just hear like how you might think about that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so, you know, we run a lot of clinical trials and very often patients will say, well, should I do this or should I wait for the next one or should I wait 10 years or never do one, you know? Um, I, I, I'll say it's a very personal decision for the patient and the family. On the science side, uh, what's important to look at on paper and speak to the investigators and, and look for what data we have uh, with the results in the animals and, and sort of, you know, all of that and ask ourselves what's the upside and the downside. That's the first calculus that you have to do as a family. So what's the, Claire, that was my alarm to tell me to stop it. Well, what do you think? Uh, we're good? We're good. We're good. good. Okay. Yeah. Please feel free to just throw the noose and... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all good. That was just the, the key to signal the question and answer component, so that's we're good. good. Oh, good. All right. Excellent. Um, so that's the calculus. So there's different upsides. So let's talk about upsides and downsides. And in your head, you have to think, uh, is this therapy intended to stabilize vision or restore vision, like, like Tom mentioned? Is it going to actually improve things on the baseline or just keep it uh, from... Both of, both of which would be mega wins, right? Stabilizing a situation would be good. And then what's the downside? And the way you think about the downside is, um, what are the side effects? that we may come up with, can I deal with, because you know, in our world there's no such thing as a free lunch, right, with any procedure. I mean, I just had a root canal, <laughs> you know, it was terrible. So there's always side effects, you know, and um, you have to um, anticipate those side effects. The other major thing is the delivery and the surgery. Is it just a little medicine I take uh, by mouth? Is it a pill? Is it an eye drop? Is it an injection in the eye? Is it a two-hour operation under general anesthesia? So there's various risks involves. And then you do that balance in your head. Okay, this is, um, you know, the predict predicted, you know, and, and this is the, the downside, and you make a decision. Um, but then again, I'm going to say something that I tell all my patients, is that the trials, um, the trials are done because we haven't answered the question yet. <laughs> right? We don't know if it's going to be good or bad for people. And it's, it's a human experiment, you know, and I know that's a very tough thing to wrap your head around, but volunteers are needed at this stage to make those calculus in their head and to get on that first or second or third rocket to Mars, you know, because uh, otherwise we'll never get there. 
Um, I think most studies have assurances in place for safety. There's committees that make sure there's no undue harm to families, that people have the option to stop whenever they want to. People can choose when to sign up. So there's all these mitigating things mixed in to make the journey as least dangerous as possible, as least risky as possible. But I just want to say that active volunteering is a incredible one, and to all of you who've been in trials and your families, and many of my patients, it's, I just salute you, it's, it's incredible. So, sorry, it was a long-winded answer, but I think it's a long discussion with your clinician uh, about what am I in for, but the act of volunteering and stepping into the unknown a little bit is the decision the family has to make, and many families do, and, and we, we all thank them. And if it's not the right time for you, Take your time to think and have another chat. Come back in six weeks. Talk to the team again. I think remain engaged and don't sign off, you know, is, is what I would say. Keep talking. Uh, yeah, there's a microphone. I have a uh, Shirley in the front. Can I? You can use my microphone. I think there. Well, Shirley, I'll give you mine. There you go. Grab it. There you go. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mine's a little different um, question. You talked about manufacturing cells. Is that a big difference from using fetal cells? Or are you still using fetal cells? Thank you. Thank you, Shirley, for that good question. Uh, folks are working on both. There's pros and cons to both. Uh, you can manufacture them from adult cells or cells in a bank, or the cells can come from a fetus. Um, both have different characteristics, and you know there, there are teams working with both cells. I would, I will say, to my knowledge, when people do use fetal cells, um, uh, I think it's a priority to make sure that they are sourced ethically, and you know there's no there's no background issues over there. Um, but yeah, I think both are in play at the moment. Did you have a more specific question about that you wanted to go over? Not really for myself, because I'm getting that age. I don't have a lot of life left. But I have two kids that have it. And, you know, I don't give much hope for myself because I'm too old. <laughs> but, you know, I just was wondering what is, because there's a lot of controversy about using fetal cells. And I, I've been to a lot of uh, stem cell things for other reasons. I also have neuropathy. And I've never went with them because they they will tell you it uh, they give you these injections and that will go wherever it needs to be you know and I thought gee what if it go to my eyes <laughs> but you know they don't use fetal cells they said but they use a mixture of different things and I was just kind of wondering about the difference. Thank you. I appreciate the question Claire this is an important question I think from people's point, you know, concerns and point of view. I, you know, there's at least, I can't speak for all the companies. One of the companies that I, I know have used it, one of the teams, you know, they have said on their materials that these are non-abortion sourced, you know, so they're obtained from other ways. Um, and, um, and you're right, the, the big question is the safety. I, I do want to uh, say something. I think a couple of people have, have now said, I'm, I'm old, I, you know, I'm out of the game. <laughs> you're not, don't think that way. I, I really, I don't, I, you know, Keep your chin up, I feel, and, and the kind of surgeries that are being developed, I, I think, are going to be very safe and applicable across, across um, all kinds of ages. You know, I, I don't think anyone's out of the game just yet, so my, I'm optimistic for you as well. 
while we're waiting for the mic to go to the next speaker, I just wanted to comment. Um, you know, we hear a lot about gene-specific therapies, gene therapy, where if you know your causative mutation in a certain gene, then all the different therapies are all about giving back a functional copy of the gene that's otherwise mutated. And that is a strategy that is, we already have an approved product using that strategy, but because it's relying on one specific gene, that therapy is only going to be effective for individuals who have a mutation in that specific gene. So that's a lot of different products we have to make in order to treat a whole group of individuals with different inherited retinal diseases. I think one of the advantages of stem cell therapy is that stem cells are going to help everyone who have degenerating photoreceptors. So instead of needing you know, a single medication for a group of individuals with different mutations, stem cell therapy has the potential to help the masses with inherited retinal diseases. Thank you for the insight, Claire. Thank you. you and I have drunk from the same Kool-Aid, I think. So uh, thank you for that. And I want to second what Claire Gelfman just said. You know, um, and, and that, Claire, that's also true in late-stage disease, intermediate, and early-stage disease, I think. You know, cytoplasmic transfer, like we said, could be a powerful way of cells to share all kinds of molecules that are not mutation-specific. So I absolutely um, feel that way. And earlier, someone said gene therapy was, you know, uh, a very appealing thing. I think maybe if there's one limitation of gene therapy, it's this, that it does take one mutation, one disease at a time, and we have tens of those to get through. So thank you for that. Comment. So who, who has the microphone? Hi. <laughs> I have Stargardt's. Um, I guess so my question is two parts. So the I'm going to follow up on Tom's question, but a little bit more specific as far as like timelines, because I know it takes a minute to get through the FDA process. Um, just if you could explain like maybe what the realistic timeline looks like to get through the FDA process to get to an actual treatment um, that is available for people to go get without going to a clinical trial. And then my other question is um, the viability of doing multiple treatments. So do you see something like stem cells and gene therapy working together? Or if you get one, will it reduce the viability of getting a future treatment? Because I know they keep progressing. And so for myself, I sort of am hesitant to get one treatment because if something better comes out, I don't want to not be, not be able to get that treatment. Sorry, that was a lot of questions. But. No, I, I totally get it. Thank you for, thank you for asking that. Can I do the easier one first, the FDA? Oh, there is a, a response back there. There's a gentleman in the back with his hand up. Was that a response to that question? Oh, okay. Um, let's do the F is the FDA one easier, Claire? I don't know. They're both hard questions. Okay. Um, so I think the FDA uh, issue is like it's several years. Okay, that's a safe thing to say. But let me give you the nuances in that. So there's a few steps. Um, there's some... Um, medicines that are already approved for other conditions, like you know, small molecules, and they're being repurposed for use in inherited retinal disease. That's one avenue, and that shortens it a little bit. Then the FDA also has a mechanism called the fast track designation um, for you know therapies with a great unmet need, where you know there's no other good option. So the FDA also opens its doors a little bit for us to get through quicker than the normal. You know, if you're developing the 25th medicine for headaches or you know, something like, you know, 
you know, they put you through the standard thing, but if it's the first medicine for an unmet need, especially with relevance to the pediatric and young age group, uh, they do have mechanisms for teams to move quicker. So even they understand. But, and I know I'm not answering your question because you were like, how many years? But I'm going to say that ish. Yeah, yeah, ish. I think, you know, like, again, my timeline, I think once you have a product, and you have all the, so the, the trouble is getting all the data that the FDA need. That takes three, four, five years. They want to know how pure your product is, how safe it is, how many animals you tested it on. Did you do the big animals that um, are more similar to human beings? Did you do it twice? <laughs> you know, uh, can you reproduce it? So that, that really is, uh, takes a long time. And then once you have that data packet, then it's very, um, it, it gets approved for human use. And then the human trials generally go through phase one, two, and you know, and th that's usually several, so I'd say several years in the lab and then several years in the human. So, I, you know, five to ten is a reasonable bracket, I think. I will say, though, because as a clinician, I feel both sides. We want everything to move more quickly, but there's a part of my brain that really understands why the FDA needs to be careful. It, it just really is, you know, stem cell therapy could lead to a couple of dangerous things. Maybe this is a nice way, nice place to bring it up. You know, the, I don't know if you, you guys read the New York Times with uh, uh, ladies who received bilateral injections of fat-derived cells in their eyes on the same day uh, from from an unregulated center. You know, they walked into a clinic where they extracted some fat cells, I believe, from the abdomen or the thigh and purified them in the lab. And you know, they were called stem cells and then injected into into these people's eyes. And a lot of those procedures went on, and uh, uh, you know, people lost vision and went blind. So that's the kind of thing that you, you don't want to, patient protection is on everyone's mind, you see, especially for someone with um, many years ahead of them. You know? So I, I kind of get it. We reluctantly go through the steps because all of us, uh, you know, physicians and everyone, just first do no harm. You know, that's so important. Is there another question? Uh, quick question. As we know, the stem cells have a potential to become almost any cell we want. So how do you control that to becoming what you want and to stopping to becoming what you do not want? Super. Uh, I'd invite you to come and visit our lab sometime. You'd be absolutely welcome to. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, there are people, of, people in general um, they, they try to figure out which molecules and chemicals you can add during the process to accelerate and direct the, the process is called differentiation. So a stem cell is undifferentiated, right, or relatively undifferentiated, and that's why, as you say, it can be pluripotent. And the meaning of pluripotent means multiple potent, you know, able to become many things, you know. So that's the original stem cell. And then people have defined several different protocols where you can add something on day 45, add another chemical at day 60, add another chemical at day 62. And it's like um, Google Maps taking you on different roads to get to your destination. And they figure those out. And there's two or three different roads to get to the final product of an eye cell. So there's, yeah, there's a few different labs that are working on it. And then some labs are working um, on a different, instead of taking Google Maps, right, to, to go turn left here, turn right here, turn, you know, the other, they go, why don't you just jump from Minnesota to San Francisco? Just go sideways. Don't take the roads. So some labs are working on technologies to convert cells from one identity to another. Like, you know, if you can take, uh, 
you know, a rod cell, make it into a cone, a skin cell, but like more, and that's, you know, people are doing that because they think it might be quicker, more efficient than going down these roads. So, long answer, but yeah, the molecules and the steps have uh, been worked on by a ton of uh, good groups. Mm -hmm. Next question. Hi, um, Michelle from Ohio. I have something called Goldman Favre, which is, I guess, under the umbrella of RP. Um, and my question is back to the FDA. I'm wondering if there's anything that we, as just general, you know, residents of this community and our friends, can do to help forward that. Like, can we, is there are there ways that you know of? that we can help speed up that FDA approval? Hmm. Or uh, is it only from your end? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do, and I appreciate the question. Is there anyone else in the room who wants to comment about this, the role of patients, families, advocates in moving the FDA directly? Anyone comfortable, feel comfortable making a comment? Yeah, uh, there's a gentleman at the back of the room. Dan, I'm coming, I'm coming. It's a great go, question. Thanks, and actually, I think Claire is probably more more uh, qualified to answer this question than I am. Uh, I'm Dan Day. I'm on the board of trustees. But we did talk about some of these kinds of things uh, yesterday during some of the meetings. And uh, if Karen Petra was here, I think she could uh, definitely give us a good lecture on that. Um, but I think you know the best thing that we can do, I think, is be good advocates for ourselves, and that's to lobby or, you know, to write to your, your Congress people and, and let them know that this kind of research is important. Um, and there are things, legislation, we have a whole, you know, we have a group of people uh, led by Karen Petro that work to lobby the, the federal government to help do these exact things. So, and I know, I think pretty sure Karen would say that, uh, yeah, that's an important thing is to let your Congress people know just how important this research is to you to get their attention because a lot of times they'll answer somebody, a lobbyist uh, or a person that's acting like a lobbyist, they'll answer the question by saying, yeah, this is good legislation, we like to support it, but we want to hear from our constituents that it's important to them. So I think that's something that's important to do. And again, I'll invite Claire to talk about that too. Um, and uh, this is a related topic, I think, too. Historically, there was, and still is today, I assume, a lot of controversy about using stem cells. You remember the days when there were very severe restrictions on stem cell lines. Uh, do those a lot of those restrictions still, they still apply? Do we still have some work to do there to clear some of those? Thanks. Dan, thank you. <clears throat> is Karen here today? Do, do you know? Is she still at the conference today? She's at the conference, but I don't see her in the uh, room. That's great. So Karen's work is a force of, of nature. Uh, thanks for that clarification. Can, um, yeah, I think... Just really quickly, yes. global networking, where treatments are concerned and stuff like that, for example, like Israel, I know you were in the UK and stuff like that, but global networking, I mean, do you guys work with that? Yeah, we do, officially and unofficially. There's the FFB has created a great consortium for investigators to interact with each other for trials and research. Uh, it's a big goal, because we don't want to all keep redoing stuff that's been done. I want to go back for a second to advocating with... Uh, with the FDA and the members of Congress. I think that's very important. There is an organization called NAVA, AVA, which is, you know, ophthalmology is uh, one of the arms that interacts with Congress, and they have opportunities for 
investigators and scientists to go up to Capitol Hill to talk to people there. And I, I was there about three or four years ago where we um, uh, gave, a, gave a talk on stem cells to, to the you know, people working up there. And um, yeah, I think speaking to your, you know, your senators and people that, you know, it's very important and especially patient groups as well. Can I, I just wanted to add one piece to that, which is do we, we should talk afterwards because, I mean, the FDA has a, I, I've been sort of collecting information on what can you do, and like they have whole formal processes for patient groups to come together to inform, you know, what the FDA does. And so, and as far as I know, there's, there isn't that kind of a thing around retinal diseases. And I do think that's one of the places where maybe we could come together because it cuts across all the retinal diseases, not just, you know, sort of, uh, individual disease by disease. So if anybody does want to talk about that, I, I would love to connect because I don't think we have taken those steps that I'm aware of, but it does seem like something we could do. Yeah, actually, um, this is Claire again. Um, we sponsored, uh, we held a patient-focused drug development workshop, very similar to what you're describing for individuals with X-linked RP a couple weeks ago. And it was just that, where individuals who have been diagnosed and are living with X-linked RP spoke about uh, not so much, you know, what measurements might be taken to evaluate one's function in a doctor's office, but what it's like to live with a retinal disease and what they can do and what they can't do and also how it affects them, you know, emotionally as well. And the purpose of this was to give, you know, the FDA, there were eight members of the FDA uh, at this workshop, and the goal here, to your point, is to better outline, you know, what it's like living with a retinal disease, um, so we can begin to think about what commonalities we're seeing, and perhaps guide specific endpoints to add to a clinical trial, so that we can better assess uh, when there is a clinical trial, and we define success by how well someone sees, whether it's an eye chart or some other measurement, that we're doing it in a way that's going to actually be meaningful. So we actually, there is that avenue, these patient-focused drug development workshops um, that where you can pick a specific, um, a specific genetic alteration to, to be the guide for that particular patient group. Hi, doctor. Thank you so much for this awesome time. Um, it's been really informative and helpful. But you had asked a question earlier and that you wanted to get it, an idea of what we know about stem cells, um, stem cell treatments. And so I wanted to comment on that a bit. Um, I had my stem cells taken from my arm and they're waiting for me at, or I had a skin sample and they turned it into my stem cells and they're, it's waiting for me at University of Iowa um, with Dr. Edwin Stone. But my understanding of stem cell is that it, the deliver, whatever the delivery mechanism it goes in and, and if it's successful, that yeah, yes, great, but isn't the other side of the spectrum was is to find out that how to turn off the gene mutation or turn on whatever needs to happen so that the degeneration discontinues and so my question is have you done any kind of of extrapolation as to you know if if this does happen and the gene isn't fixed 
how long do will the photoreceptor cells remain viable? Super question, thanks. Um, <clears throat> so I think someone earlier mentioned gene therapy and stem cells together. Yeah, that's a super uh, exciting thing. So people are thinking about correcting the gene mutation in the patient, that's one. Number two, using gene therapy to pump the donor photoreceptor cells so they have enhanced survival and they can live and integrate and incorporate while their neighbors are in a hostile situation. Does that mean, you know, when you put healthy photoreceptor cells in, all the cells surrounding them are degenerate. And that's a hostile environment for these. And Anand Swaroop did some nice work, and many others actually, Deepak Lamba, um, uh, Ed Stone, you know, looking at strategies to enhance survival, even if you don't correct the underlying mutation, because that's not always going to be possible. Um, many people in the field are working on the assumption that as long as the stem cells come from a um, I, I see your question because you're saying your cells still have the same mutation, right? That's right. So there are two approaches here. Thank you for bringing this up. Uh, you know, autologous and allogeneic. Do those words mean anything to anyone? So autologous therapy means I gave my own cells and they're growing them up and they're going to transplant them back in the eye. And you're absolutely right that they'll contain the same mutation. There are a couple of groups in the world pursuing autologous cell therapy, not photoreceptors, but you know, Masayo Takahashi, Kapil Bharti, uh, even uh, David Gam's group working on IPS. One principle that they spoke about early on is that when you make a stem cell, you turn back time on the cell. You, know, you take your cells, which is from an adult individual, and in the lab, you, you rejuvenate them, and, the word, and that word means making them childlike again. So you take them back to time equals zero or one month in a dish. And they have an accumulate, uh, at that stage when you've reprogrammed their identity, they haven't accumulated the damaging degenerative characteristics. So just making them younger again might be avenue number one of preventing their degeneration when you transplant them. And then separately, people are thinking, well, if that doesn't work so effectively, we'll have to correct the mutation. And there's work going on with gene editing, genome editing, uh, gene therapy on those cells. David Gamm has a beautiful paper about when he took cells from a patient with a different eye condition and corrected the mutation when the cells were outside. So um, people are definitely working on, on all of that. And uh, Ed Stone Lab with, with uh, Bud Tucker and his group with Ian Hahn, uh, working very hard on, I, I know they have an amazing platform to get cells from patients. So the short answer is yes and no, and maybe not always, but hopefully yes. <laughs> Sorry. Another question? Yes. I'm coming, I'm coming. Microphone's on its way. There's one mic, I'm coming. Hey, okay. Uh, so qu clarifying question first. Um, for the current state, the optimistic pieces to me sound like we know how to make the stem cells, manufacturing, delivery, that's all being worked on. The big question is the biological mechanism that the stem cells are effective in treatment. So is that our limiting condition right now? Like is that, that's the missing piece before it can be expanded beyond like a gene, specific gene treatments that are approved. Is, is that correct? Generally, you really speak to my heart because this is what we do in the lab, you know, finding out the mechanisms of how this works. Uh, the short answer is yes and no, and maybe, no, I'm kidding. The, um, 
the real answer is, uh, I think people agree that multiple things will happen when you put cells in. So it's actually going to be combinatorial and not exclusive. Cells will, uh, you know, may do a little bit of everything, make new synapses, secrete new uh, materials, exchange cytoplasm. I think there's multiple things going on in there. Um, I don't think, actually, the ultra-short answer is no. I don't think the absence of, um, I, that, that part of the research is not a limiting factor at the moment. Many products are being developed. Many labs are moving forward with human cells ready that do their own version of rescue without necessarily doing all of them. So it's very important, only I bring it up because it represents an avenue for pumping up and boosting the act, promoting the action. If we understood the mechanisms, you can then create ways to make the stem cells more effective with a lower dose and maybe less immunogenic, less side effects, so it's about optimizing the treatment. But I think the first efforts at human treatment, you know, my, my view is can, can move, you know, probably, it's not an absolute roadblock uh, in terms of the mechanism at the moment. Uh, any, uh, the other uh, physician scientists in the room, please feel free to chime in on, on what I've said. I won't call names, but please feel free. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I hate to be the one to say that uh, our time uh, is up for this very, very interesting and dynamic discussion. Um, Y'all asked great questions. I want to thank sincerely our wonderful speaker, uh, Dr. Singh. Please join me. You know, I, I think stem cells really add a lot to our toolbox uh, in terms of ways uh, for treatment. Um, so we look forward to hearing more and more about the utility of stem cells to add to other gene-specific approaches and non-gene-specific approaches that we'll hear about today. So thank you again for attending. And uh, the next session is our keynote luncheon, which begins at noon in Fiesta Room 5 and 6. Thank you again for your attendance. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That was great.